Welcome to Ignite, an original podcast from Design Sensory Intelligence. This is a podcast for business pros like you, from sports and entertainment to travel and tourism, financial services to economic development and more. We uncover relevant, timely information that will help keep you at the fore of consumer behavior understanding. Our host, Chris Wise, the brains behind Ignite, has been deeply committed to research, insights, and innovation for over 30 years. He knows the right questions to ask and, more importantly, what to do with the answers. Get ready for the engaging, in-depth conversations with industry leaders that will inspire you to take action and connect with your audience on real human terms. This is Ignite, the spark to light your fire. Welcome to Ignite, where we have the opportunity to talk with subject matter experts about important and compelling Marcom issues. Specifically, we delve into incredible tools for audience identification, behaviors, and ways to communicate with them, allowing for total engagement. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Dave Nugent, Vice President, Data Solutions with Aspire North. Dave, welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks, Chris. Through Dave, we've been working with Aspire North in the development and execution of wildly successful direct marketing campaigns. And when we started working together, we knew it was going to be a long and mutually beneficial relationship. The first project alone produced an increase of 800% in qualified leads for one of our clients. And that is with people having at least $1 million in investable assets. We learned as much as we could about the nuances of the audience, which led to the development of a killer creative strategy, topped off with pinpoint precision in the audience database. Everything worked together as it was intended. Yes. So Dave, first, tell us about yourself, your background, your position and responsibilities, how you found your way to Minneapolis, and what your day-to-day looks like now compared to two years ago. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So I... uh... I got into the data business almost by luck. I really didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of school years and years ago. And I was recruited by a gentleman who was working for one of the big data compilers at the time, a company called InfoUSA. They've since been rebranded as Data Axle, but um, really had no idea how data was used in marketing, but I felt like it was an interesting company. And so I decided to give it a shot and loved it. I, I, I got in there and started learning about data and how it's used for you know, creating targeted lists for mail. At the time, that was the primary channel for targeted lists, how it's used for analytics, how it's used for customizing messaging, all that fun stuff. And I was there for a couple of years before I decided I wanted to become a little bit more impartial in the types of data that we provide. So I started my own company at the ripe age of 24 and made a career of providing lists and analytics and developing some some proprietary and patented technologies that we can probably talk about a little bit later. But found my way in Minneapolis because about 10 years ago, I sold my two data companies to a top 100 printer in the country named American Spirit Corporation, headquartered in Minneapolis. They're the parent company to American Spirit Graphics and Carlson Print Group and, and several other organizations. But you know, it was an interesting movement at the time 10 years ago. All these new marketing channels were emerging and marketing budgets were being fractionalized. And so you know, people in the print industry wanted to figure out what, what was their next move. And American Spirit Corporation took a liking to data. They thought, how do we make print more purposeful? How do you target more effectively? How do you customize the messaging to be really relevant? 
how do you measure performance on the back end and make you know little tweaks here and there to find incremental gains and so they they loved data they liked how we operated as an organization so they brought us into the fold it was about 5 years in where i was asked to come up north to minneapolis to be with most of the salespeople in the organization to help them position data more effectively you know it was a fast moving industry there were a lot of changes going on and so I was brought up in a leadership role to help educate the crew on data, how to position it strategically and, and help guide a lot of sales presentations. So yeah, that was about five, six years ago. I love it up here in Minneapolis. It's a great organization. It's a great state, great people. And um, haven't looked back since. <laughs> so, so data is your middle name, right? And uh, <laughs> that's, that's just what we'll call you. Although that's kind of science fiction, isn't it? Anyway, how have things, just in the last five years, the evolution to where we are today in database management? Well, a ton has changed. In one way, the application of data has grown tremendously. When I got into the business, this idea of buying a mailing list, actually, you never buy it, you rent it. You, know, you rent the data from one of the big compilers like an InfoUSA. And you use that rented data to power a targeted marketing campaign. And back then, that usually meant direct mail. Then came email. And then it's just blown up. We live in this world called addressable media. All media is pretty much addressable. If you, if you have a physical address, you can send media to them. It doesn't matter if it's through a social channel. It could be programmatic uh, digital display. It could be uh, connected television, obviously direct mail and email. So all of these channels now, you're able to send messaging to individuals and households. And so that was a huge change. And that really opened things up for us data folks. We were able to say to our clients, look, you have the ability now to create these hyper-targeted audiences using all of this rich data that's available, thousands and thousands of data sets that allow you to pinpoint the types of consumers or businesses you want to reach. And now you're not limited to just direct mail. You can use every channel under the sun pretty much. <laughs> Full omni-channel is the world we live in now. And so that was a big change. It's just the proliferation of channels by which marketers can reach their targeted prospects and customers. But then I think the biggest change has come in the form of data security and data privacy. And it was definitely needed. You hear of uh, GDPR and CCPA. These are all laws and regulations that have popped up that I think were needed. I think there's a balancing act between being invasive, intrusive, and being responsible and making sure that your marketing messages are relevant. The last thing we want is marketers to have a lot of waste out there. And I'm actually talking physical waste. Yes, direct mail that's mistargeted is wasteful with, you know, when it comes to environmental issues and monetary issues. But you know, we just don't want to have mismatched messages going to people because it's irritating. So you have to strike a balance between um, having good, relevant content being targeted because actually consumers want that. They want to feel like businesses know them, but you can't cross that line. You can't imply that you know too, not too much about them because that becomes creepy marketing. 
So that's one of the biggest changes that I've seen over the last couple of years is how do you maintain this ability to hyper-target and have really relevant messaging without crossing that line and being creepy and getting people thinking that their privacy has been totally invaded. That's an interesting point. And it's not an issue that's going to go away. In fact, it's heightened as more and more privacy controls and legislation we put into place. Now, with that in mind, how do you stay at the fore of of that understanding to make it all work and ethically sound? Absolutely. Yeah, you need to make sure that you're good stewards of the data. And uh, one thing that I hope we get to talk about a little bit later is how do you how do you put these controls in place, especially with companies that have first party data, first party data? You know, I I, I use that term pretty um, frequently, so I forget maybe not everybody knows what first party, second party, third party data is. First party data is basically an any organization's customer data, their in-house data. That is so valuable, not only to the organization themselves, but making those insights available to other organizations in a totally compliant sort of way. Because if you can glean insights from other people's data to make messaging and services and offers more impactful for the population, you're doing everybody a service. You do it in the wrong way, though, and you, you've crossed that line. So it's it's an interesting environment we're living right now. But uh, believe me, most people in the data business understand the need for these controls. Um, We don't want there to be some of those bad apples out there that's going to spoil the bunch for everybody. It takes one over-the-top creepy marketing campaign to get people thinking, we got to shut this down. And I actually think that that's not what's in the best interest of everybody. I know sometimes I sound like a spin doctor, but when I talk to people about all this data and how you use it, I oftentimes say, Look, you're not going to stop the marketing machine. You know, people have to pay for the internet. You know, the, all that content that you're consuming, it's not free. It costs a lot of money to produce that content. You know, you have to be able to accept advertising. It's going to be in your life. Now you have to ask yourself, do you want advertising that is relevant to you and your lifestyle, your interests, your behaviors, your attitudes, or do you want these advertisers just to cast these unbelievably wide nets? And maybe they get you, maybe they don't. But most people will say, you know what? I'll use myself as an example. I have teenage kids. I like to play golf. I enjoy certain types of TV programs. Like, if you send me some golf-related advertisements, that's way better than, for example, skiing. I'm not a skier. I live in a state where skiing is really popular, but I'm just not a skier. But if somebody targeted me as a Minnesotan thinking I'm a skier or I like to ice fish, no, you're going to miss the mark. But if you know something about me, you know I'm a golfer, go ahead and pepper me with golf advertisements because that's what I would prefer to see. So I, I do believe that making good use of data in an ethical sort of way with good guardrails in place is mutually beneficial not only to the marketers, but also to the consumers. Super. Shifting a little bit, have you ever hit a brick wall when it comes to client understanding of legitimate application of direct marketing? If so, how did you change their heart and mind, or did you? Yes, absolutely. I, sticking with this theme of having relevant messaging, 
that's the big one. I can't tell you how many times I've come across somebody that says, you guys have just too much data. That's you shouldn't be able to have access to that much data. And you instinctively jump right into this explanation about how this information is public record, right? I could go to the, the, the courthouse, local courthouse and find out when you bought your house, how much did you pay for it? I can, do you own pets? You know, all this stuff is public record, but people don't want to hear that. They would just want to know, well, why do you think it's okay to have um, this much information? And that forces me to get into a similar discussion that we just had. And that's, we have to be responsible marketers, consumers. If you look at the research, consumers want advertisers to know about them. And so that brick wall is, you guys are, I actually had a guy one time say to me, I told my wife, she kind of laughed. But in the moment, I was like, that was really mean. This guy came up to me and said, you know, there's a special place in hell for people like you. And I was like, whoa, that's really aggressive. Now, it, it was in the context of a data solution where you mentioned earlier, Chris, identity. There's a lot of utilization of data in what's called identity services these days. It's, it's basically trying to remove the anonymity of consumers that are showing certain types of behaviors whether it's places they're going, what they're searching. And that is, you know, you got to be careful with that stuff. But we choose to deal primarily in voluntary type identity solutions. And I remember we were working on a campaign in some major league arenas where we were running some text promotions and it was like trivia or you know, who's going to win this race. And, and if you were texting, you were we were trying to figure out, okay, well, where is this text coming from? What's the phone? It's a caller ID. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's so-and-so that's participating. They're in stadium. And maybe while people are in stadium, we'll create an aggregate view of the people that are participating in these texting contests. And we'll find out that, wow, there's a lot of boat owners in the stadium today. So instead of having a billboard that just reads something in some insurance company, you have an insurance ad that talks about boat insurance and, and how much can be saved when you combine your boat with auto and home and whatever. So you're using all this identity data to customize the experience for these consumers. And I'm thinking this is really cool. You know, the data nerd in me is like, look at all this rich data that we're mining in real time and we're customizing the in-stadium experience to, to be really relevant to the audience of that particular game. And this guy says, you know, there's a special place in hell for, you know, people like you, you know, looking at us, that was, holy smokes. So you have to get with those people and say, look, if it's not done well, if it's not done tactfully, yeah, you cross the line. But if you do it tactfully and you do it in an environment that is governed, then it really does serve a benefit to the consumer. And all the research shows that the consumers do in fact want it. So. Yeah, that's the brick wall. It's those people that can't wrap their head around the idea that good utilization of data is actually a benefit to them. Yeah, and we also know that consumers want and respond positively to what feels like and legitimately can be a, a very personal one-on-one -on -one experience, no matter how large your brand is, that that you 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 do identify with them and they with you. So it's so you can't do that by just shouting into the wind. And you really have to understand them and appreciate them. Um, in research, we use a term called uh, universal positive regard. That means you treat everyone as in a positive way and try to understand them in a positive way. So that's how you communicate with them. 
that's how you build a, a trusted relationship. So you can't just look at a picture. You have to know more about the person. Absolutely. Shifting again now to moving to a, a specific topic that is near and dear to our hearts and both yours and ours, please share in as much detail as possible how to best leverage audience mining and profiling to enhance respectful, appropriate ways to communicate with and motivate the myriad of people representing the 26% of the U.S. population who are disabled adults. In other words, how can an inclusivity in the truest sense of the word be properly embraced in the marketing funnel? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that more utilization of first-party data is needed to create better marketing experiences and, and creating more opportunities for disabled individuals or people dealing with some sort of a disability. For example, we're living in a world right now where because of GDPR and CCPA, there's an emergence of you know, what people commonly call data clean rooms. And it's a safe house for people to share their first party data so that it can be combined with other people's data for analytics and activation of, of marketing campaigns. And this was really important because most companies don't want to share their customer information, right? That it, especially the PII, the personally identifiable information. So we needed to figure out as an industry, how do we overcome this? Because the best data that's out there is first-party data. I'm a huge fan of third-party marketing data. You know, companies like Experian, Epsilon, Axiom, you know, those are some of the big names in third-party marketing data, and they have great data. You wouldn't believe how many resources go into compiling and maintaining these third-party marketing databases of essentially every U.S. adult. And so, you know, whether it's them buying research companies because they want to project attitudes and opinions and interests against the, the, the U.S. population or you know, they're building these sophisticated models to predict you know, if they're going to be in the market for something in the future. These are great, great databases. There's no doubt about it. However, first-party data is king. And we needed to figure out as an industry, how do we make people feel comfortable sharing their first-party data? And that's where these data clean rooms have come in really, really handy. You can load your data in an anonymized sort of way so that you can combine your data with other data sets to create insights, to create really targeted uh, marketing campaigns. And I think if more companies share their first party data, especially when you're talking about certain types of disease states or, or disabilities, you're going to be able to influence the entire marketing approach of a lot of brands so that they're making sure that they're catering to a much more segmented population. So for example, if you happen to, if you're mining some first party data and you're finding out that there are certain people with some sort of mobility disability and you're trying to promote an event at a, at a, at a ballpark, let's say, you probably don't want to say to somebody that has mobility issues like, hey, run the bases during the seventh inning stretch or something like that. That doesn't resonate. And that may even be depressing. And who knows? But if you were able to carve out a segment of your target audience and know that they may have 
some sort of disability, some sort of mobility issue, you can position the brand very strategically so that they feel included, that this is something that they can align themselves with, that they can generate this affinity towards that brand. And if we use more and more data, like I have a client that is in, it's a nonprofit organization that helps people that are transitioning into a world of blindness, you know, whether you have some sort of a macular degeneration or glaucoma or something that is going to eventually get you to a point where you're partially blind or completely blind, when that happens, your world changes, right? And so how you move around your home, you need to be trained on that. You need to make modifications to your home. You need to learn how to navigate the world around you. And so that data is so necessary to have and use because if you're a brand and you are trying to create, let's call it on-site marketing materials, signage, for example, if you know that there's a big percentage of people that are attending a particular venue where there's vision challenges, maybe more Braille is going to need to be available inside these locations. So there's probably lots and lots of examples of how we can leverage this data more effectively for a better experience and more inclusive uh, inclusion and more equity. But those are probably decent, just you know, off the cuff examples. But again, I have to emphasize it does come back to creating an environment where where organizations are comfortable sharing their first party data, and that is the future of these data clean rooms. It's completely protected. It's safe. It's it's they're built in a as I called it, anonymized, non-PII sort of way. And it's compliant with all of these emerging regulations like GDPR and CCPA. So that's the future, Chris. Have you seen or had any interaction with clients that have demanded inclusivity, even if you've helped them through the messaging process, demand inclusivity or say, we don't want to do that? Have you had any extremes of absolutely need it or absolutely don't want it? Yeah, we see that quite a bit. Um, and it's oftentimes they, they're not doing it on purpose, right? They're, they're kind of doing reverse discrimination almost, where they're saying, I want to target certain groups, like very, very specific groups, but unintentionally they left out certain folks that should be included. And that's another slippery slope, right? A great example is in financial, and I know this doesn't have you know anything really to do with people you know, suffering from these different disabilities, but in the financial industry, we had a, a long time where people would come to us in the data industry and say, hey, I wanna, I'm a financial institution and I want to create some loan products and I want to target certain types of people. And they're typically focusing on levels of affluence and and they're focusing on home values and stuff like that. And not intentionally, they were leaving out big swaths of the population. Sure. And we said, well, you can't really do that because you're kind of inadvertently discriminating against groups that could use your services. And so what the industry did, which I applaud, is they said to financial institutions, look, if you want to build targeting models, if you want to build these predictive models that help you identify households that are in individuals that are going to be really geared towards your particular products and services, we're going to 
limit the types of data you can use in your models. So they, 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 they call them FLA-friendly data points. So Fair Lending Act, FLA, Fair Lending Act. So FLA-friendly data points. For example, you can't use age, gender, ethnicity. You can't use you can't use those data points in any kind of model if you're a financial institution trying to sell loan products, which is great. They've gone even a step further, and this is how the industry somewhat self-regulates itself. It says you can't even use data points that were built off of age, gender, ethnicity, et cetera. So for wow. example, one of my favorite data sets in the marketplace is Experian. Experian's non-regulated marketing database is called Consumer View. And they have a data point in there called Mosaic. And Mosaic is a clustering system that basically there's 71 of these really, really ultra-defined groupings. And every household is slotted into one of these 71 clusters. And these clusters are defined by age, gender, you know, marital status, ethnicity, home ownership, length of residence, inferred credit, you know, whatever, interest categories behaviors. They're really, really descriptive. Well, a part of Mosaic has some of those data points that are dangerous. So we as an interested, not only can you not build models, targeting models, bank or, or mortgage company or whatever, loan company, any financial institution, you cannot use those data elements that we described earlier, age, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, but you can't even use Mosaic because those were built on age, gender, and, and hundreds, thousands of other data points. But because one of, you know, a couple of those data points are sensitive, you can't build your targeting around that either. So the industry said, all right, financial institutions, if you want to build targeting models, you have to use what's called FLA-friendly data points. And there's still hundreds of them. Um, right. But it's a way for us to make sure that we're not somehow excluding people because we want to promote inclusion. And I think the same thing could happen on, on, uh, in the world of marketing to people that, you know, are, are dealing with some form of disability. Oh yeah. I, I believe that's to be true. And the 26% disabled also within that category, there are all those other data points as well. So racial ethnic minorities are in that data point as well as, you know, age, gender, all those things fall in there. So, you know, we talk about disabled, but from our work, we're, it is really truly the, the diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility for all that it's really important. Recent study we did showed that not only do the 26% care about being portrayed in advertising or marketing communications in a positive way and being there at all, but basically up to 60% of the total U.S. population would prefer to do business with a company that is sincere and intentional in the inclusivity work. And that's becoming larger and larger as societal empathy uh, continues to grow. And it's, it's not buried somewhere. It's, it's front and center and will continue to be that way. Absolutely. So, it, it shows the humanity of a business, right? Yep. It's not just about the bottom line. It's about, of course, every business is looking to have a healthy bottom line. But in the process, if you can show that you know, you're showing sympathy and empathy towards others, because most of us do have it, but you somehow get into the business world and it almost, 
makes, you know, it has this perception of everyone's really jaded and they're singularly focused on, on profit. But most of us, you know, want to have an impact on the world beyond just making money for others. You know, we want to be able to lift people up and support people and create that inclusion. So I think you're right. It doesn't surprise me that your studies have shown that uh, people want to know that these organizations are trying to foster an environment of inclusion and and, and equity. And it must be sincere. Yeah. We're going to continue to share that with all of our clients and certainly in the work we do with you. You touched a little bit, but beyond um, the privacy issues, what looking to next year and beyond be the, be the oh soothsayer that you are and uh, share what, uh, what challenges, fears, and joys that, that, uh, that you see lurking ahead? My biggest fear, and it almost sounds like it's a thing is is more and more restrictions on this data. I think that there is this belief that you know most data people are using data for evil when in reality they're trying to use it to create a more positive experience. I just saw a commercial just yesterday, a new Apple commercial about the new iOS and it was like this auction uh, venue and this group of looks like shady people in the auction room are bidding on this gal's private data. And so they're painting this picture that everybody is trying to grab your data in a nefarious sort of way, and they're going to use it for evil. When in reality, if you're upfront with clients about what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, and giving them the option to, to not have it collected or to give them the option to know what, what has been collected... If you give the control back to the consumer a little bit, not a little bit, if you give the control back to the consumer, period, then I think it's going to be a win-win. But that's that's my fear. My fear is that you're going to wake up one day and you know marketers are going to be so severely hamstrung that they can't do targeted messaging, they can't do targeted marketing, and then all this free content goes away right? Next thing you know, you have to pay for every single website you visit. You have those, those, um, oh gosh, what I'm drawing a blank on the name, the pay, the paywalls, I think they're called, you know, you get to these sites and they tease you with a little content and then, oops, do you want to subscribe? And I mean, there's subscription fatigue out there. Like I, you know, even in entertainment, Yep. how, how many friggin' streaming services do I need? I'm just getting tired of subscription. Can you imagine a world where these content providers are forcing everybody to pay for the content because advertisers don't want to advertise anymore because they don't want to cast such a wide net. They don't want to have that much marketing waste. Everybody's looking for marketing efficiency. That's a huge word right now, buzz. Marketing efficiency, marketing efficiency. If we can't use this kind of data, we won't have marketing efficiency. So that's my, my big fear. My joy is that every research paper I read shows that consumers want brands to know about them. Well, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't (laughs) say, I I don't want you having any of this information, but at the same time you say, but I want you to know more about me. How do we bridge that gap? And I think we're doing it right now. and, And I'm excited for what that means. I love the development of these data clean rooms. This is creating a safe house 
Switzerland of sorts for these brands to share their data in a neutral area where you control it. You can still control your data, but it's completely anonymized. And inside these clean rooms, you know, the data is being merged and it's being mined and, and targeted audiences are being developed. And then straight from those clean rooms, you can push those targeted audiences to these advertising platforms, whether it's a Facebook or a platform for you to deploy programmatic display. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited for that because I think that's the the, the next evolution in data-driven marketing. Perfect. Dave, you have been great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. This has been fun. Thanks, Chris. And thank all of you for listening to Ignite, a podcast from Design Sensory Intelligence. If you want to know more about the various ways we gain audience intelligence, then turn that intelligence into solid marketing solutions. Just send a note to me, Chris Wise. Until next time, stay wise. Thank you for listening to Ignite, a podcast from Design Sensory Intelligence. If you want to learn more, head to designsensoryintel.com. Until next time, continue your pursuit of quenching your unending thirst for intelligent understanding of human consuming behavior.